This is the final week of Summit, and uh, we have a conference um, here today, and that's why we can't use the, the children's building over there, and so we're going to pack in here. And uh, so I appreciate you being patient, but if you would kind of move in, because we've got a lot of folks in the back who are trying to um, make their way, and I know you got here early, and you got the aisle seat, and you're excited about it, okay? But let's just swallow hard, and let's move in, and let's let the folks in the back make their way on in here. They got room on the front row even, so come on up. Um, well, hopefully you know that the book of Genesis, the key word is beginnings, and it's broken up into two parts. You have four events and four people. The four events are creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, and then the four people known as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so, um, well, there it is. And so it's four events, four people. We've looked at the four events, and we've uh, begun to look at the, the life of Abraham. And uh, I have actually been in Israel for the past two weeks and had an amazing trip. I'd never been there before. It was pretty remarkable to, to see everything concrete. Our faith is rooted in history, and to be able to go back and to walk the streets and go to the places where literally Abraham walked and Moses and others was uh, quite a treat. It was, it was really cool. But I was bummed because the week that I missed and didn't have the opportunity to teach, um, Reverend Crotty back there, he taught on the Abrahamic covenant. And the reason why I was bummed that I missed that is because I cannot stress the importance enough of the Abrahamic covenant for you. Um, I've often said and heard it said, and I believe it to be true, that if you really want to know how well somebody knows their Bible, ask them to explain to you the Abrahamic covenant. Because it is possible to take the theme of the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Because it is upon the Abrahamic covenant that promise of land, seed, and blessing upon which everything else is built. And it is um, the foreshadowing of what God is going to do in his rescue plan in offering and providing Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew 1 opens the way it does. By saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Because it's the Abrahamic covenant upon which the Davidic covenant is built, upon which Christ offers the new covenant to us. And so the Abrahamic covenant is foundational. It's key. And, um, and the question through, once God promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing, the question continually throughout the Old Testament is, will God be faithful to his promise? Will God be faithful to his promise. How's God going to fulfill his promise in light of these circumstances? Take any period in the Old Testament. Think about um, the book of Exodus. You have God's people now in captivity, enslaved in Egypt. Has God forgotten his promises to Abraham? What are his people doing held captive in another nation? What's God going to do? Has he forgotten? Exodus 6, I've heard the cries of my people, and I remember my covenant with Abraham. And he raises up Moses. Any period throughout the Old Testament, the question we ask ourselves, how's God going to fulfill his promise to Abraham? And how we understand this covenant is even going to affect the way we read and view the New Testament. And how our um, understanding of the, old, of the end times will even play out. So it's, it is essential. And the question that um, we are going to continue to ask ourselves as we make our, march our way through Genesis, which we will continue again in the fall, so don't throw away your books, <laughs> um, is that very question. How's God going to fulfill his covenant 
land, seed, and blessing to Abraham. Um, <clears throat> now, I want... Whoa. I'm missing some slides, fellas. There we go. Um, in chapter 18, this is how I filled out uh, my chart. Um, I, I, I titled it The Divine Visit. This is where God is going to come to Abraham. There's three angels, one of which is... Um, the Lord, and he comes and he says to Abraham and Sarah, he says, hey, listen, this time next year, I'm going to come back. And I am going to fulfill exactly what I promised um, several years previously. Is that you're, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And we see uh, Sarah's disbelief. Um, this is the chapter where uh, Abraham intercedes for, for Sodom, where his nephew Lot lives. It's a um, pretty fun little study there. Chapter 19, I entitled, Don't Look Back, right? Lot's wife makes a critical decision in looking back, which there's much that we can, um, you know, I'd love to spend some time looking at that and just considering the implications of um, why that theologically is important and just the comparison gang of of where her sights were set and just the, the war within her own soul, right, between the spirit and the flesh. There's a lot of parallels with us. There's Lot and his daughters. His daughters sleep with him, uh, which creates two more tribes or families who will later become perennial enemies of Israel. Um, Chapter 20, you see Abraham uh, deceive Abimelech, and um, the Lord appears to Abimelech. Abraham right now is not living by faith, right, but uh, deceives Abimelech into trying to make him believe that Sarah is his sister. Chapter 21 is um, the birth of Isaac. And so finally, 25 years later, after the original promise, 25 years later, we read these chapters, we're kind of like one after the other sequentially and move pretty quickly, and we don't allow for the gap of time. 25 years. And so Abraham and Sarah had to have been thinking to themselves, hey, Will God fulfill his promise to Abraham? In fact, both doubted it and felt like, well, we must have to help God out. Maybe we misunderstood. And so Abraham and Sarah make the tragic decision for Abraham to sleep with who? Hagar. You want to know where the Middle East, the source of the Middle East conflict is over in Israel these days? Between the Ishmaelites, right, and the descendants of Isaac. And so um, that had long-lasting consequences. In chapter 22, we see the offering of Isaac, and in chapter 23, Sarah's death. There is a ton of information right here, and I'd love just, I'm so tempted to drill down on each chapter, um, but time won't allow me. But there's, but there's something that stuck out to me that I, that I um, wanted just to make sure that, that you saw. Something that I observed that... Um, was thematic throughout these chapters. And I want you to see if you could tell what, what these have in common. Okay, what do the following passages have in common? I'm going to read them, and then uh, we'll talk through them. The first scene is Genesis 18, verses 10 through 15. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "Am I After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? 
and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard before the Lord? Verse 14. If you have your Bibles open, encourage you, highlight, underline, circle that little statement right there. Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, that's the crux of this whole deal, of this whole passage, of this whole book. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, because she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. That's scene one. Scene two, Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So this is about a year later. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. Now, you remember the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. That was the significance of that. As God had commanded him. Verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That's scene two. Scene three, chapter 21, verses eight through nine. And the child grew and was weaned. So maybe this is a few years later. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. What do you see that's common to all three of these passages? Laughter. Laughter. That's exactly right. This next little screenshot I have here it shows you with Sarah, the first one in first scene, chapter 18, 10 through 15, Sarah laughs in disbelief. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son in Genesis 12 and 15. It's 25, 24 years later right here. God appears and goes, hey, this time next year, it's coming. And Sarah just laughs. And then when she's called on it, what does she do? Oh, I, I didn't laugh. I, no, no, I, I didn't do that. To which the Lord goes, no, no, you did. And she laughs in disbelief. The next scene, God fulfills his promise exactly as he said he would do. At the point in which he said he would do it, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And he now is, his name essentially means laughter, son of laughter. In other words, she is marveling that God provided a son for her and Abraham at such an old age. That it's joy, it's disbelief, it's people are going to laugh. What is an old man and an old woman doing with a newborn like this? It's crazy. Look how God fulfilled his promises. The third scene around laughter is Hagar, who laughs at Sarah and Isaac and Abraham in scorn and ridicule. And so you see this whole idea of laughter throughout this, throughout this passage. And the, the, the question that I asked for you this morning is, do you believe that there's anything that is too hard for the Lord to do? 
You see, that's why the laughter is going on. Is because it is hard for them to believe that God is actually going to fulfill the promises that he said he would do. Is anything too hard for the Lord to do? Is it too hard for the Lord to resurrect a dead marriage? Is it too hard for the Lord to help you overcome a sin habit, an addiction? Is it too hard for you to find reconciliation with those who you've been estranged from for years? Is, it too, is there anything in your life that you would say, hey, it's just too hard for the Lord to do? And in a sense, you find yourself just kind of laughing. Yeah, that may be true of that guy over there. God may have redeemed him. He may have saved his marriage. He may have restored that relationship. He may have gotten them out of financial burdens. He may have done all that for them over there. But when it comes to me, I mean, I just kind of be honest with you. I just, maybe it's too hard for the Lord to do. See, before we're too hard on Sarah, I think sometimes we have to push pause and go, hey, you know what, there's times in my life where... If I'm honest, I, I want to believe, but it just seems crazy. And I kind of just, I kind of laugh. One of my favorite passages of the scripture, we don't have the slide. This is bonus points. Turn to Mark 9. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture because I so relate to Sarah and I so relate to this father. This man whose son has been sick. He goes to Jesus and uh, Jesus' disciples, and they can't do anything for him. And so in exasperation, the man and his son, they go to Jesus himself. And look at, look at Mark 9, verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help. You see that right there? But if you can, I want to believe you can. If, if you can... And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, he said, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, this is beautiful. I believe. Help my unbelief. You ever been there before? Don't you love those sta- that statement right there together? I believe, I believe, Lord, you could do it. Help my unbelief. Abraham and Sarah, I believe you could provide a child for us. You're God. I believe it. Laughter. Help my unbelief. Hebrews 11.6 says this. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's thematic throughout all of Scripture. It's true in Abraham's day, it's true in Jesus' day, and it's true today. But understand this, it's not a blind faith. So that's what always... Uh, frustrates me when I talk to my friends who are skeptical. They're just like, you just live by blind faith. And I go, no, no, it's not a blind faith. It is a reasonable faith. The illustration that was given at the apologetics conference in September, which 
I really appreciated was the whole idea that um, when I got on the plane to fly from here to Tel Aviv, Israel, I didn't interview the pilot. I didn't check the mechanics of the plane. But I willingly trusted and got on that plane. Why? Because I know that planes fly from Dallas to Tel Aviv, Israel every day. I I know that those pilots have hundreds and hundreds of hours of training. And and, And I know that planes don't just... You don't read in the news that a plane goes, that's supposed to land in Tel Aviv, Israel, and somehow it ends up in California. But every day, consistently, those planes take off. It is, a reason, it is reasonable to believe that by boarding that plane, that it's going to arrive exactly where it's supposed to. Statistically, it's as safer than driving down 75. Amen? And so, our belief in who Jesus is And what the Bible teaches and what it promises is rooted in history. And when it's not a blind faith, but we can go and we can study and we can verify, it does require faith, but it's not a blind faith. But it's rooted in history. And Abraham and Sarah and this gentleman, this father in Mark 9, gang, is a challenge to us about do we believe that there is anything that is too hard for God? And so contrast that real quick with what is the um, probably ultimate expression of faith with Abraham offering his son, Isaac. It's funny to me, and it just encourages me that you've got Abraham, a man of such great faith at one moment. In the previous chapters, he is lying about who Sarah is, not living by faith in his own insecurity. Help my unbelief. But then just a couple of chapters later, right, you see in Genesis 22, he is offering his own son. I believe. Genesis 22, look with me if you would. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You think about that. How could this have made any sense to Abraham? Well, wait a minute. I've waited 25 years. This is the son of promise. And now you're telling me? You're testing me? You're telling me to offer up my own son as a sacrifice? That seems crazy. Rembrandt made a picture of this. I mean, I just can't imagine... Um, what this would have looked like. I actually saw this picture. And um, it just blew me away. It's, it's not a small little picture. You know, you go see the Mona Lisa in, in Paris, France. It's just like this little thing. You're like, that's it, right? You go see this thing. It's like from ceiling to floor. And you look at it, and you're like, whoa. Whoa. I mean, you gotta, you got to read this with, with in 3D, gang, right? You, you can't just read it. It just flat. You've got to sit there and think. Abraham took his son. And Rembrandt's version of this is he's just covering his eyes. Like, I don't even want to see. And he's prepared with that knife and he's ready. Right? And you see the ram and the thicket in the back and you've got the angel. And I don't think that's what the angel looks like. I would encourage Rembrandt to revise that a little bit. 
Angels are always uh, these little cute little girls, right? And uh, in Scripture, whenever you see an angel, what does everybody do? But they fall on the ground in, in terror and fear. And I think this angel appears, and Abraham's like, whoa. And he stopped in his tracks. So the question always asked of me is, well, how in the world could Abraham do that? And the text tells you, verse 5, Then Abraham said to his, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come back to you again. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Think about that. How do I know that? Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered, look at this, he considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham, in this incredible faith, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question. And Abraham, in this amazing act of faith, believes that if he offers up Isaac, he doesn't know how this is going to work out, but he believes if he offers up Isaac, God is able to raise him from the dead. Same guy a couple of chapters earlier is like, hey, that's my sister over there. I don't know if God can provide for me. That's my sister. And here we see this ultimate expression of faith. And why would God challenge him? Why would God test him? Why would God ask him to do it? Because I think, gang, it says because he wanted to test Abraham. That's certainly an aspect. But I think he's showing Abraham exactly how he is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, that the people are going to be given a land, that from Abraham will come many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, and that from him will come one who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we know that descendant who is a blessing to all the nations of the earth to be Jesus. And how did he become a blessing? Because where where Abraham stopped short, God followed through. You realize that? It's a picture. It's a picture of, hey, Abraham... You offered up your son and let me for all the generations for everyone to see that I'm going to offer my son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's what God did for us through Jesus. He offered his son in fulfillment of what he promised Abraham so that we could experience the blessings of what was promised way back in Genesis 12. It's a picture. And this is why right after God stops Abraham, he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant and says, hey, let me tell you what's about to happen. 
It's interesting, um, when I went to Israel uh, just last week when I was there, I, I, uh, I went to Mount Moriah. And you know that in Mount Moriah where God instructs Abraham to offer Isaac, it's the same site where later Solomon's temple was built. It's the same site on Mount Moriah where the second temple that Zerubbabel he builds. It's the same site where later Herod the Great comes along, remodels Zerubbabel's temple, and builds the huge temple upon which Jesus entered. It's there on Mount Moriah that the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God rested. It's just a few hundred yards from Mount Moriah where Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. It's as if God is saying to Abraham, and for us to see specifically looking back later on, look, where Abraham stopped short, I offered my son for the sins of the world. And it's the same holy spot where you saw the temple, where, which was symbolic of the presence of God to dwell. For years. You want to know what's on that spot today? You got to guess? Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock. It's the Muslim holy site of where they believe Muhammad ascended into heaven, had a spiritual journey into heaven. And they believe, according to the Quran, that Abraham offered Ishmael, not Isaac. And it's in the center of the Dome of the Rock upon which Abraham offered Isaac, upon which the temple of Solomon was built, upon which Zerubbabel's temple was built, upon which um, Herod's temple was built, the temple where Jesus entered and overthrew the money changers and challenged the authorities, not far from there where he died, and in the very same spot that Ezekiel tells us that one day there'll be another temple built. Your Bible just comes together, gang. Is there anything that is too hard for God? He's providentially in control of all of history, directing the course of its events. A couple of things I'd love for you to consider in closing. First thing is, Sarah gave birth to Isaac 25 years after the Lord's originally promised She and Abraham a son. Now you think about that. 25 years later. It would have been hard to wait, right? So my question is, what are you currently waiting on for the Lord? And how has this tested your faith? And what do you think it means to be faithful during times of waiting? See, it's one thing for us just to look back and think about Sarah and Abraham, but what about you? Is there anything that you are waiting on for the Lord? And it's been 25 years. Maybe it's to see a loved one trust Christ and you have grown tired of waiting. Maybe it's for a marriage to be reconciled. Who knows what it may be? But you've got to ask yourself, do I think that there's anything that's too hard for the Lord to do? And what does faithfulness look like during this season? Are you going to come up with your own strategies and coping mechanisms and Hagar's in the world? Or will you trust the Lord? Second question, Hagar mocked Sarah after she gave birth to Isaac. Which just made me ask the question, you know, when are the times I've been mocked because of something the Lord's done in my life? 
And then what, how are we to respond when this happens? And then finally, Abraham demonstrated extraordinary faith in offering Isaac. And what lessons are we to learn from this story from both Abraham's perspective? What does it teach us about God? And what about Isaac's perspective? <laughs> I mean, what was the conversation like after that? Sarah greets him at the bottom of the mountain. So what did you two boys do today? Isaac, well, Pops took a knife to my throat before the angel of God stopped him. That probably led to marital conflict, right? But what are the lessons we're to learn? I think central to all of it is Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think all of it is essential of that question. Hey, is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? I think if we're honest, we're right there like Mark 9. I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? If we're honest, we're probably a mixture of both. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need one another to spur one another on that what we believe is worth it. It's worth persevering. It's worth battling temptation. It's worth hanging in the fight. It's worth being in the word. It's worth memorizing scripture. It's worth loving those who continue to mock you. It's worth continuing in prayer. And you need encouragement. Gang, don't go from summit and then just go be a lone ranger for the next several months until we meet back again. Get in community. Keep tracking with the guys in your summit group if you don't have a community group. Right? Stay after it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth giving your whole life for. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, I thank you that um, we can see from all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, Lord, that your rescue plan for us is in, in motion. And that, Father, where Abraham stopped short, Lord, you were willing to follow all the way through. And you did it for our benefit. You did it, Lord that we could be reconciled to you, rebellious, sinful, prideful, stubborn, selfish people. And Lord, despite our rebellion, Lord, your son willingly laid his life down. No one took it from him, but he was willing to lay it down so that we could have life. And so, Lord, I pray that because of his great love for us, because of his sacrifice, we would be courageous, we would be bold, we'd live by faith, we, Lord, would be living, effective, confident ambassadors for Christ. Father, we wouldn't just go to work today and go through the motions. We wouldn't just return home to a family today and just indifferent and unmoved and unchanged. But, Father, we would be uh, ministers of your gospel. The Father, we would speak peace in situations of conflict. That, Father, we'd speak wisdom where there's confusion and foolishness. That we'd be bold to speak out in the face of sin and temptation. And that, Father, we'd be used mightily by you to further your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't laugh or scoff at the promises of your word, but we would live confidently in light of your grace and your goodness. And each time we wane, each time we swerve, each time we doubt, I pray, Lord, that we would look back on these stories and that we would be reminded, Lord, of your track record of 100% faithfulness. So even when we can't understand, even when we're confused, even when our son is sick, Lord, and nobody else can heal him but you, 
I pray, Father, that uh, we would trust you. That we would hold on. That we wouldn't laugh, but we would believe. And continue to entrust ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. Thanks for these men and their dedication and commitment to being here. Father, may we not just walk away unmoved, but may our hearts be engaged. And may we be your hands and feet today. In Christ's name, amen.